for lots of folks, they'll experience something called visceral hypersensitivity, mm-hmm. where a small amount of stimuli will cause a gigantic reaction. So I like to tell my clients that you've got a drama queen living in your belly and uh, <laughs> we're going to try one. to, yeah, we're going to try to calm her down. Yeah. I see, a, I see a lot of folks who do have a lot of stress and anxiety, um, diagnosed anxiety. Uh, and I would say that over the past couple of years with the pandemic, I've seen a tick up in these diagnoses mm-hmm. and there is something to be said for how your body responds to stress and being in a chronic state of stress also creates chronic inflammation in the body. But with reflux and with IBS, two things that I see that are common is one poor sleep habits Mm. and poor stress management habits. You heard it there, folks. Gut and stress. And we're talking about it here today on the show. Roll the music. You're listening to the One Small Bite Podcast with me, your host, David Roscoe. For over a decade, I've built a successful nutrition practice helping thousands of people thrive, nourish their life, and break the cycle of crazy diets. We will take one small bite at a time to transform your health and develop a positive relationship to food. So let's chop the diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Okay, are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Small Buy Podcast. I'm your host, David Orozco, registered dietitian nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor. And you heard there from Beth Rosen. She is our guest today, and she is a weight-inclusive RD, registered dietitian, specializing in GI nutrition and disordered eating. She's based in Connecticut. She has been working in the field of nutrition for over 25 years, and she helps clients find really relief from digestive disorders such as IBS, SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, gastroparesis, celiac disease, reflux, and others that we're going to talk about on the show today. So stay tuned because this is going to be a great show. Beth is also sharing her knowledge with other health professionals via webinars, seminars, and peer mentoring. You know, she also has design techniques and programs to empower chronic dieters, disordered eaters, and those in eating disorder recovery to mend their relationship with food and their bodies. Beth has written for major online and print media publications, such as the Huffington Post, Very Well Fit, and Fabu Plus Magazine, and has appeared as a recurring guest on the Fox 61 Morning Show in Hartford, Connecticut. You can check her out online to learn more about Beth, her work, and her philosophy. Go to her website at BethRosenRD.com. And today, we are going to talk about those things that I just mentioned. IBS, irritable, excuse me, irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO, EOE, reflux, and a couple of other ones that you might not have heard of, but uh, this is great because this ties into our series on stress. But you know what? Enough for me. Let's get into the show. Here we go. Hey, Beth, welcome to the One Small Bite Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm looking forward to this chat. Um, 
I'd love for everybody to know, why did you get into gut health? Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, so I've been a dietitian, and of course, I'll date myself since 1995. And I started in what's now called corporate wellness, but back then it was called health education. And uh, I did that for a while because I was trying to stay away from the weight management space. And it seemed like anywhere I went, that was going to be a factor. And even though I really didn't know much about health at every size yet, or intuitive eating yet, even though I had read that book, I knew it wasn't a comfortable place for me. So I sort of stuck in the corporate world for a little while, took a mommy break and, you know, did some volunteering and things like that. And then while I was on that mommy break, I um, came down with C. diff, C. difficile, a really bad gut infection. And it took a little while for them to diagnose me and treat me. And then I was diagnosed subsequently with post-infectious IBS in which 12% of those folks who get post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome end up being the lucky ones that get irritable bowel syndrome and don't recover from the post-infectious disease. And that was me. So this was back in 2011. And so I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and no one had any answers for me. No one, nothing. There was nothing they can do. No medications, nothing. It was, oh, you're still in pain. Okay. Come back and see me in six weeks. And I found that really frustrating. So I started to return to my research roots as we dietitians learn to do in school. Mm -hmm. Right. And my critical thinking and found out how to treat myself. I found the low FODMAP diet. It was new. Uh, and began to take trainings in it and um, learn from some other dietitians that were already beginning to practice that. And I just had a passion for helping other people feel good in their bodies with these diagnoses where um, they're functional, where you can go in and have a colonoscopy and an endoscopy and not see anything right? That's, but the function of the gut doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those people have a long time between feeling symptoms and a diagnosis. So I wanted to help them in that space, either between feeling those symptoms and getting a diagnosis or being newly diagnosed with something they didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how I began. Wow. Okay. Did you end up leaving the corporate world after that and then start your practice and kind of went in full force or slowly tricked into, uh, trickled into that? So I left the corporate world when my son was born. Uh-huh. And, and then that's where I took that mommy break where I was doing nutrition education in school. And I was sat on, you know, wellness boards and revamped school menus and things like that. Just, you know, yeah. uh, things that I could do where I was still home with my kids. Okay. And then when I decided to go back out into the world, I, I started with a private practice and I did a focus on, on gut health and intuitive eating. Okay. And that's where you are now, right? So that's yeah, still here. Pri- primarily what you're doing is working with people with, in gut health and uh, intuitive eating. So tell me, what, what are the type of clients that you are seeing? What are the most common conditions that you're dealing with? If you could kind of get to both answers. Sure. So the most common conditions I'm dealing with on the GI side is irritable bowel syndrome, usually diarrhea predominant. There are four subtypes. That's one. Another one is constipation predominant. I do have those clients. I also see people with gastroparesis, which is a delayed gastric emptying I see lots of reflux or GERD as it's called. 
Uh, I do see SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And um, I'm starting to see some new ones who are being more commonly diagnosed or um, more frequently diagnosed now that there's diagnostic tools for it. One being um, sucrase isomaltase deficiency, which is a deficiency in the enzyme that breaks down starch and sugar. And I'm seeing uh, eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE, which is um, an inflammation uh, or an inflammatory response in the esophagus that can lead to strictures or blockages or um, scarring in there. Um, so I'm seeing those folks. Uh, the other part of my practice, that intuitive eating part, I went into starting with intuitive eating to help people get off the diet cycle, to start learning about taking care of their bodies, not based on being smaller by losing weight, but by focusing on health behaviors at whatever weight they naturally fell at. And because I started doing that work and my space was weight inclusive, meaning that it didn't matter what body you showed up in, I was going to help you on your health, not on your weight. Uh, I started to get more clients with disordered eating and eating disorders. Mm. So I do see a lot of folks with eating disorders as well. Okay. I got a ton of questions along with that. So I'd love for you to start off with IBS and kind of give us a little background about where we are with the low FODMAP, because I'm, I'm sure tons of people will go to their GI and the GI will give them a handout and say, follow this, or they probably heard of the low FODMAP, or maybe it's tied into carbohydrate in one way or another, right? Because we've been on the low carb craze for, I don't know how long. Uh, talk long. to us. Yeah. <laughs> talk to us uh, where low FODMAP is, where IBS is and in, in, in the treatment in that regard. Yeah. So IBS is considered a disorder of the gut brain interaction, meaning that the gut and brain talk to each other through the vagus nerve and also through some microbes in our microbiome. And when you have IBS, what we're finding is that there's a, a disconnect um, to that communication. And so for lots of folks, they'll experience something called visceral hypersensitivity, where a small amount of stimuli will cause a gigantic reaction. So I like to tell my clients that you've got a drama queen living in your belly and uh, <laughs> we're going to try one. to, yeah, we're going to try to calm her down. Uh, so a lot of the latest research ongoing now with IBS is really focusing on um, the microbiome and how to diversify it and, and heal it from whatever was causing the miscommunication. Mm. Um, don't know all the details. There's so much research out there. So I don't want to share those details, but what we do know from a dietary standpoint is the first line treatment is typically the low FODMAP diet and FODMAP is an acronym and it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which is a fancy way of saying fermentable carbohydrates. Mm. And, um, it's not, this part's not intuitive. You can't look at a fruit a vegetable, a grain or dairy and say, Yes, that's fermentable. No, that's not. So you need to have lists. And that's what those handouts are typically about is like a list, but one page is not going to cover everything that you can eat yeah, on the low point. FODMAP diet. So the gold standard is the Monash University in Australia. Mm -hmm. The folks that developed this diet, they created an app where uh, it lists all the foods that they've tested in the lab and the portion sizes that are low FODMAP. Because there are some foods that you can have 
that at a certain portion, they won't impact your gut and at a higher portion, they may impact your gut. So this diet can, um, it's been shown to work for 50 to 80% of folks, which is a large percentage, uh, and tends to have a better outcome when administered by a registered dietitian. So those handouts that the GI docs are handing out may have information on them, but that's doesn't have the support or the education really attached to them. Uh, so it's important that these folks not only meet with a dietitian, but also are screened for eating disorders. So I'm just going to bring it back for a second about that, because when, when somebody has an eating disorder, whether they're diagnosed or not diagnosed, uh, they should be screened um, when they come to see us or when they go to see their GI doctor, um, because it's important not to administer dietary interventions while somebody is suffering from an eating disorder. It's important to treat the eating disorder first Mm -hmm. before treating the GI disorder. Right. Mm-hmm. So yep. if somebody comes to me and I screen them and I'm feeling like they have an eating disorder, we'll discuss that part. I will not put them on the low FODMAP diet. Mm-hmm. There are other options. There's other dietary options and there's non-dietary options. So the other dietary options are there's another form of the low FODMAP diet called the FODMAP gentle, mm-hmm. which just removes a few common triggers from the diet. And in that case, you know, it's not a, a huge um, impact to the overall diet, but it would be a discussion we'd have to see if, if doing that would increase eating disorder behaviors. And the other one is what Patsy Katzos, who's a RD, who's been in the GI space for a long time calls cherry picking and cherry picking is just not even telling them that you're changing their diet so much, but looking for the high FODMAP foods and the foods that they say they eat regularly and suggesting a substitute and seeing if that helps them feel better. Mm, that's good. That's really good. I'm definitely in line with that as well. As well, I have a couple of clients who have an eating disorder and have GI issues, and their GI doctors are saying, "Okay, you have to sh- you have to go on a dairy or uh, a gluten or carbohydrate elimination or a low FODMAP." And I'm constantly calling the doctor's office saying, eh, "No, I really it's so counterintuitive right now, but." It's not a good idea to do that because we've got to really look at her history or their history. And yeah, that's so good that you're saying that. I really appreciate it. I want to go back to something just so people understand a couple of things, because this is a word that gets thrown out and it's in, it's a little complicated. What do we mean about when we say fermentable carbohydrates? Why would an apple be fermentable, whereas something not? And where is it being fermented? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, that's a that's a good question. So there are different kinds of carbohydrates. There are different categories of carbohydrates. As I said, those long scientific words before, yeah. <laughs> and each each category reacts differently in the body. There are some that when the food is broken down and moves from the small intestine to the large intestine, that the microbes in our microbiome that live there feed off of those and produce gas. And then we feel gas, we feel bloating, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Then there's osmotic carbohydrates that when they don't get digested, for instance, excess fructose. So fructose needs glucose. This is a little science lesson. Fructose needs glucose as its partner to get digested or to get absorbed. Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't have its partner and it's just floating out there as a single, it causes problems. So it goes into the large intestine as a big molecule instead of being absorbed and broken down. And so Back to seventh grade science, os- osmosis happens and water gets drawn into the gut and that causes bloating. 
So we get bloating, we get gas. And some of those reactions going back to that drama queen (laughs) can cause a lot of pain and discomfort for some folks, right? So you might eat an apple and not have IBS and the carbohydrates are fermenting, Mm -hmm. but you don't feel it. And then I have it. And if that was one of my trigger foods, then I would feel it and it would be really uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And so the gut microbes that are in the colon are essentially converting that fructose because we're not absorbing it. And that's what's creating a lot of that excess gas, the methane and the hydrogen. Is that what you're saying as well? Well, for fructose, it it draws water in. And for the other ones, yes, it ferments, it creates all the fun gases. Methane, yeah, is is one of those good smelly gases. (laughs) It's not good. It's a bad, bad gas. So. Yeah, I'm glad that you cleared that up. But you, I, it, it's one of those things that I always wondered: is it the the fructose or is it the other guys? So I'm glad that you're bringing that up. Um, and uh, just a, as a side note, side question: I, I think I remember reading somewhere, and of course this is through Doctor Google, so I didn't do the the um, uh, good thorough investigation in this. But uh, most of us flatulate several times a day. I mean, most of us, all of us, several times a day, right? Regardless yes. of whether we're male, female, or anything in between. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Most of us pass gas regularly, but for people with IBS, it can cause pain. It might mm. not be released. It could be trapped. Right. Um, right. And it could have a, a terrible odor. Yeah. that right. That's what I was getting at. I wanted to really to highlight that because I, one thing that's important about IBS is that we can have bloatedness or we can have some discomfort, but it may not mean that you have IBS. And I just want people to understand that there's got to be some kind of pain and major discomfort. Is that, am I hitting that right? Yes. It's associated with pain. It's also associated with change in frequency of bowel habits, either more or less and change in the appearance of the bowel movement. Mm -hmm. So loose or pebble-like, you know, the two ends of the spectrum. And those are the three criteria that are typically used as part of the diagnosis for IBS once the structural um, diseases have been ruled out, things that would show damage in the GI tract. Yeah. Like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or something like that, right? Correct. Yes. Um, Okay. So one of the things that I think is very important to know is that you really do need to go to a, GI, to a GI doctor to get an IBS diagnosis, right? First and foremost, you don't want to just try to diagnose yourself. No, you want to get it. You want to rule out all the other stuff first, especially celiac disease, because when you do uh, get treated for IBS, if removing gluten containing grains is part of the intervention, which, you know, they're not necessarily FODMAPs because they're protein and we're looking at carbohydrates, but the grains that contain um, high, that are high FODMAP also have gluten. So we tend to remove those for a short time. And in order to be tested for celiac disease, you have to stay on gluten in order to see if the, if it's causing damage to the villi in the small intestine. Right, 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 right. And that, that goes through a series of four or five different types of testing for that. There's blood tests for the genes, there's blood tests for the antibodies, and then there's, you know, the gold standard is the endoscopy with biopsy. Biopsy, right. Okay. Um, I want to also add one other thing. You mentioned Monash University, which I think I'm so glad that you did that because I too have that app and it's so, so helpful for so many clients. But that Monash University in Australia, they really have done an extensive body of research in the low FODMAP um, approach. And again, I just want to give them some credit here because they have that great app and it does provide with 
clients with a lot of great information and a great way to help them kind of see. I love the red, yellow, green approach, even though it's still a little diety in the world, so to speak. But I do like how the red, yellow, green is more related to dosage response because there's also a dose uh, significance in all of this. That's exactly wanna... it. It is a dosage response. It's yeah. It's not. You can. You might have a, a portion of, for instance, Brussels sprouts, and you can have two Brussels sprouts, and after two, they become high FODMAP. That doesn't mean you stop your vegetable portion at two Brussels sprouts. You can mix it with potatoes or carrots or anything else you want to mix it with, and still have a portion that's satisfying to you. And that's where it sort of deviates from the diet world. I love that you picked Brussels sprouts. I can imagine people hearing this and going, oh, I don't like Brussels sprouts, so I'm not worried about that. <laughs> I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I love Brussels sprouts too. I mean, but we're dietitians too. Right. So. <laughs> we're in a world of our own. Um, yeah, I want to go back to the eating disorder issue. From my understanding, uh, tell me which, which, which direction is it? Is it people that have an eating disorder are more likely to have gut problems or is it people that have gut problems have more eating disorders? It's the chicken and the egg story, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So the research shows that up to 98% of folks with eating disorders will develop a functional GI disorder mm. during their time with their eating disorder. And only about, I think it's, I think the number is 10 to 12% of people with GI disorders develop eating disorders. So it's a oh. smaller number. Okay. Okay. So it's you, it's probably more the <clears throat> eating disorder leading to the GI, Much more. obviously. Yeah. Okay. The good thing though, if you can find a, a silver lining on this cloud is that once the eating disorder is, once you're doing recovery work for the eating disorder, the GI disorder will dissipate. Mm, okay. for, for most people. Right. So right. That, that's, that's a good, a good thing to note that, you know, if, if you start to, um, eat more mm -hmm. and eat regularly, you can really start to heal the gut. That's good. Um, you know, one thing about disordered eating or eating disorders is that um, I know that your population, my population, somewhat similar in that we have chronic dieters or people that have weight cycled or people that have done restrictions uh, and avoidances of foods that probably wouldn't fit um, so nicely in the criteria of diagnosed eating disorder, they would fall out in the fringes, so to speak. Um, talk to me a little bit about that population, because I can imagine that the years of dieting or the years of restricting, uh, unbeknownst to an individual, what have you known or what have you seen either in research or in your experience that causes problems with their gut or does it? Yeah. So, that's a good question. So when we restrict foods and food groups, we're eliminating large portions of, you know, nutrients that are available to us. And, you know, I don't know for sure which of those groups causes the most problem to our microbiome when they're eliminated, but I do know that restriction and a narrow diet leads to a um, microbiome that is not diverse. And a diverse microbiome is a healthy microbiome and leads to a healthy gut. So that's like the, you know, the basic information. So if somebody's living off of three or four foods or a small repertoire, most likely their gut health is going to suffer. All right. I'm going to play devil's advocate here though, mm -hmm. but uh, Beth, come on. I mean, when I eat all of those other diverse food groups, they cause a lot of GI issues. What do you do there? So the goal there then would be to talk about 
low FODMAP or FODMAP gentle. Let's figure out when you've removed those foods and you come to me and you said, yes, I've removed those foods. And I say, and, and do you still have symptoms? Yes. So then removing those foods didn't relieve the symptoms, might have exacerbated them by removing them. So let's put them back in, at least the ones that are low FODMAP and liberalize the diet. And then see what else we can add. Because like I said before, that the low FODMAP foods that you can have is a longer list than you could fit on one page, right? So let's see what else is there that you might be comfortable adding. Right. Okay. So then this gets back to, we kind of hinted a little bit at this and I meant to ask you this early on. So I'm sorry that I'm jumping backwards a little bit, but it kind of brings me to, or reminds me that there's sort of an indicator as to who we already talked about the eating disorder, disordered eating uh, population, but are there other people that would, you would not put on a full on low FODMAP diet? And I know that we are both in the weight uh, inclusive and um, intuitive eating space, but you do use the full low FODMAP approach with some clients. Is that right? I do. And I don't see it as a diet because it's not restrictive for weight loss. I see it as a dietary intervention that helps people feel good. Yeah. And if it, and, and it's in three phases. So the first phase is the elimination phase, which is the shortest phase. It's two to six weeks. Mm -hmm. And I typically check in with my clients at the two week mark. Mm -hmm. If they're feeling better, we move to reintroduction. Mm -hmm. If they feel a little better, they might stay on it just a little longer, but I don't want them to feel that the high FODMAP foods are all quote unquote bad for them, as they say. Mm -hmm. And then if they're feeling no difference, then we abandon the diet altogether. And we look at non-diet approaches, or we go back to the GI doc and said, okay, we tried this. Maybe we need to test for something else. Uh, And so, so that's, that's the path I would take with those, with that part of the diet, you know, cause it's a small part as for other people, I might not put on a low FODMAP diet, uh, people who are not tech savvy. So my elderly population, because there's so much information to be had from that app. And if they don't know how to use it, it makes it difficult. So I tend to lean towards the gentle with those folks. Plus they tend to eat pretty habitually. So it's very easy to see what foods are high FODMAP, what foods are not. Mm. Um, I avoid it with folks who have issues with food security. Mm, yeah, of course. That's a good one. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's tough. Anybody else? Children. No children oh. on, on any sort of restrictive diet unless, yeah. you know, there's a food allergy. Yeah. That would be the reason why. Yeah. 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 Um, gosh, I love hearing it, it, it almost makes me go, oh, good. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes we practice in silos and it's like, yes. gosh, I hope somebody else is doing the same thing I'm doing or gosh, am I doing it right? You know, because sometimes some of this is really just put it together. Does it work? And, you know, even though we get a good amount of training, it's like, you got to go out and you got to do it with your clients. And it's like, oh my gosh, am I doing it right? You know, and we're such perfectionists too. So yeah, Um, I I found that, you know, uh, group mentoring or one-on-one mentoring or supervision, even though we don't need it for our um, career advancement is really helpful in one, finding out if you're doing something right to hearing from others who are doing the same and learning from them. And also um, just being able to learn some more things that might work for your clients that work for other people's clients. I I find that really helpful. So I I look for those groups. 
I, I love that you're saying that. Yeah. One of the things that we do in our practices, we have a team meeting every uh, Monday and twice a month we do case study review as well as individual um, uh, or sorry, as well as study reviews. And then uh, once a week, I meet with each one of my clinicians to talk about their clients to help out with our clients as well. So we can get a good group approach. But on top of that, we also both are, myself and my clinicians are part of supervision groups or mastermind groups. So we can do just this as well, because I found out over time that I would go years without knowing what else somebody else is doing. And once I found out about masterminds and supervised groups and, oh, that's so helpful. And it really just more than anything else, it emphasizes the approach that we take with our clients, being able to get greater and uh, best practice, although I don't like calling it best practice. I like calling it better practices um, because we could always get better. Um, right. So I'm glad that you're saying that too. Um, I do want to move into a couple of those other conditions, but let's talk about GERD if you don't mind. I'd like to jump to that one because we see a lot of people that have heartburn. I have heartburn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see a lot of people that are dealing with heartburn issues. How do you work around that? I, I'm, I'm assuming you don't do a low FODMAP diet, obviously, right? But I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about who are those population? What people are you seeing? What are those dietary approaches? Now, low FODMAP diet has been researched just for IBS. It's not meant for other um, diseases, but, and reflux or GERD, it has its own set of dietary modifications and behavior modifications. So I like to review those with my clients to see if they're participating in any of them and then have them do some curious observation around that. So either they can eliminate it and see if they feel better or notice when they do have it, if there are symptoms that follow. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Let, yeah. yeah, sorry. Let me interrupt you real quick. And I just realized let's for our audience sake, let's actually uh, tell them what GERD is, what reflux is the difference between the two. Cause I think that, that could be helpful too. Yeah. So GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. I put you on the spot. I'm so yeah, sorry. That's okay. I, just I got it. That. <laughs> you did. Uh, I got that Jeopardy question. <laughs> so that's GERD, G-E-R-D. Uh-huh. And reflux is just, you know, the shortened version of what people call it a heartburn. It's all the mm-hmm. same. Okay, good, good. All right. And so what uh, population do you think you see it or do you see it the most with? I see it in a lot of different populations. Yeah, so do I. I don't think it discriminates. I mean, <laughs> no, I've it seen doesn't. it in young as like 12 year olds. Mm-hmm. And then I see it in the elderly and I see it midlife. I see it everywhere. Yeah. I, I and, and it's not a body shape and size issue. Either. Oh, no. no. And there's not one disease that exists that is a body shape and size disease. There are, you know, people of every size body get diabetes and cancer and IBS and all the rest and it does, and sleep apnea. And it doesn't matter what size your body is because diseases don't, um, they don't pick a body based on size. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that that's what goes back to the stress, right? I think we, we, we got to understand. And the reason why I'm picking on GERD and I, we just talked about IBS is you had mentioned that miscommunication with the gut. There seems to be also, in my experience, something similar that's going on with stress and both IBS 
and reflex or GERD. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's your experience with stress in those, in those two realms? Yeah, I see, I see a lot of folks who do have a lot of stress and anxiety, um, diagnosed anxiety. Uh, and I would say that over the past couple of years with the pandemic, I've seen a tick up in these diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And there is something to be said for how your body responds to stress. And being in a chronic state of stress also creates chronic inflammation in the body. Mm. And that chronic inflammation can lead to many other diseases if it, if it um, persists. Um, But with reflux and with IBS, two things that I see that are common is one poor sleep habits Mm. and poor stress management habits. Mm. So with sleep, it's about getting enough for your body getting regular sleep, staying off your devices prior to bedtime, just so that your brain has a chance to shut down, Mm -hmm. right? Because during sleep, that's what our brain's doing. It's compartmentalizing the day and resetting for the next day. And if it doesn't get the opportunity to do that, that stress will carry over, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then stress management techniques, there are so many. One, seeing a therapist. Two, diaphragmatic breathing or deep breathing, meditation, taking a walk with a dog, playing with a child, if that's relaxing to you or enjoyable to you. <laughs> yeah, finding, it depends on the person. <laughs> right, finding enjoyable things to do, yeah, right? That can, mm-hmm. Figuring out the work-life balance, if that's one of your triggers, right? Setting boundaries with folks that might mm-hmm. trigger your stress levels. All of those things can be part of m- managing your GI health because it, it's in such connection to how the brain functions. That's so good that you're saying that I literally just two episodes ago talked exactly about this. And in the last episode, I talked also about um, waking up in the middle of the night. And I've actually done uh, an episode on seven non-diet approaches to helping with with see, with your sleep. But in this one, I talked about how the stress is so related to the sleep. And so we can now start seeing how it ties in together, right? We got the stress that may be partly to do with not having a a functional shutdown routine, which therefore maybe you're seeing your smartphone or your iPad or TV into the evening, and then your REM deep sleep cycle is disrupted. And therefore you're waking up in the middle of the night. And then, I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? So you have that pro-inflammatory event occurring, prolonging the conditions that we're seeing. I often tell people, now that I say that, that GERD or reflux is one of many signs the body is telling you to either slow down, relax a little bit, get better sleep. It's telling you something. And it's a great thing to listen to. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, it, it. I know we want to try to decrease and get rid of it, but I'm so glad that your body's talking to you that way, because what can happen down the road is much, much worse too. So um, there are other uh, reasons why we get GERD too, though, aren't sure. there? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> despite what we hear in on Dr. Google and in the media, yeah. our, our bodies are not fully within our control. Our health is not fully within our control. So there's a lot to be said for our genetic blueprint, um, access to healthcare, race, our gender, um, socioeconomic status that can play a role in that. So even if 
you have um, stress as one of your triggers to your GERD. Maybe not everybody has that. There might be really Zen people who still have it. It might just be a genetic predisposition or something else. So what I want your audience to understand is not necessarily their fault. And while there are some things that they can do that may help it, they may not be able to help it except with medication. So there's also that piece too. I would hate for somebody to worry that they're not doing enough, that it's their fault. Um, Cause we tend to blame the patient a lot in, uh, in oh, weight, so much. right. Weight centric care. We blame the patients. So I want to blame, you know, yeah, what are you doing wrong? What are you right, doing? What, How what come you, you're not doing right, that? Right. What are you eating? Yeah. How are you sleeping? Yeah. Kind of thing. So, um, so I just wanted to say that first, and then I don't even remember what the question was before <laughs> that. Well, the other part that I was going to say is, well, what do you do from a food standpoint? Because I know we used to have certain, uh, foods that were either acidic or had certain components to them that would literally be causing, uh, we know that that's not the case, that they're not causing reflux or GERD, but um, what do you do from a dietary standpoint to help your clients? So they may not be the cause, but they can certainly exacerbate symptoms. Sure, right. So I will review with clients those couple of categories, one being spicy, Mm -hmm. Um, And that includes like white pepper and black pepper, even though they're on the lowest end of the spectrum of spicy stuff, paying attention to how much pepper and spices and things adding acidic foods. So tomatoes, citrus, those kinds of things. There's also acid in coffee. So, uh, but in that case, you know, I tend to say, these are some of the things that could trigger here are some alternatives, right? So there is low acid coffee they could drink that you can find. There's a bunch yeah. of different brands. Um, there are millions of herbs, maybe I'm exaggerating, but herbs that do yeah. not impact GERD yeah. and that can season your food without spice, pepper, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other things that could exacerbate it, like alcohol that actually exacer- that can irritate the lining of the stomach, mm-hmm. um, carbonated beverages that will literally float bubbles of acid up with the, with the carbonation, right? So some of those things. And then I talk about the actual structure of the stomach and how that can be impacted by um, eating past fullness. So when we stretch the stomach, we can also stretch that muscle that holds the acid in the stomach, that lower esophageal sphincter or LES that mm-hmm. can be stretched, like almost like when you're stretching a balloon at the top of the mouth and it makes that noise mm-hmm. that then acid can bubble up from there if there's mm-hmm. space there. Mm-hmm. And then there's some foods like and not for everybody, but foods that are high in fat, like fried foods and large amounts of chocolate and things like that, that relax that muscle, right? Cause we feel good when we eat those things, but so does that muscle. And if that muscle's relaxed, sometimes that can allow acid to pass up. And so while I don't tell people you need to eliminate acid and spice and chocolate and coffee, I will say, eat those things and keep a log and do some curious observations. See if any of those things impact your reflux. And if they do great, then you have the choice to eat it or not eat it because it's in their control, Mm -hmm. you know, unless they're at risk and have a family history of esophageal cancer or Barrett's esophagus or Schatzky's rings. These are things that are structural Mm -hmm. that could get worse. But for the most part, people who have reflux just have reflux. Yeah, right. I'm so glad that you're mentioning all of this. I love your approach here. Eat curious or be curious, have a log and be curious and then experiment, see Mm -hmm. what works, what doesn't work. Do you also see it with people that eat very fast or with the rate at which people eat or how much food they're eating? Do you see that as well? 
But how much would be related to if they're eating past fullness and their belly stretching? And that's different yeah. for everybody. So it's hard to say mm-hmm. if I, if we talk about intuitive eating and we talk about listening to your cues mm-hmm. and discuss what does fullness feel like, if they can identify that they are eating past fullness, that might be a cue for people who do have fat, high fat foods as a trigger. I'll always say, okay, so get the French fries, but eat something else with it. That's lower in fat. So it sort of balances out what's Mm. in your belly, Mm. because it's not just that the food has high fat. It's the, the fat content of the meal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's pretty much what I'm doing with my clients as well. Um, and then I just also love that you're talking about the idea that there are just multiple approaches with people and it's not like a cookie cutter. This is pretty much the theme that you're going through here as well. I want to go into the other ones because I think they're very, very interesting. Um, there, we're seeing a considerable amount more of diagnosing of these conditions. Let, let's start with EOE. So EOE simply is eosinophilic esophagitis. Typically people that have it tend to have another allergic um, diagnosis. So EOE is like an allergy in the, mm-hmm. in the throat um, and it causes damage to the esophagus. So other ones could be that they also have asthma or they have um, allergic rhinitis, or as my family calls it, hay fever. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I another, that as well. Right. Um, or some other allergic um, airway kind of thing. And, um, what can happen is that the eosinophils, which is a part of the inflammatory response attacks the lining of the esophagus Mm. and it can create scar tissue, which can narrow the esophagus. It can also cause discomfort and vomiting and nausea and all those kinds of things. So with something like that, dietitians work very closely with the gastroenterologist because, Right now, the the best method we have for figuring out what's causing it are food elimination diets Mm -hmm. and doing those for a certain amount of time and then going back and having an endoscopy and seeing if there's been a... um, if there's been a slowing of the um, process or if there's no longer an inflammatory response by taking biopsies and, and looking to see what's going on in the esophagus. I don't see a lot of that, but I have seen it. How do you deal with EOE with someone who has an eating disorder? Do you have clients like that or have you seen that? And what's yeah, the challenges I'm, there? Yeah. The, the challenge is that they have to do the elimination in order to avoid really damaging their esophagus. And in that case, and with celiac disease, which is a, an allergy to um, wheat and gluten products, and it's, and it impacts the body, it damages the lining of the um, small intestine. Um, with these, I like to let them know that this is not about being smaller or making your body smaller. It's about taking care of your body, right? We have this one earth suit that has this complicated inside to it. And if we want to live a long, healthy quality of life, we need to care for it. Mm. And if we know that a certain food causes damage to it, it would be wise to avoid it. It's different than the low FODMAP diet. Those foods, if you find one that is a trigger for you, it's going to cause discomfort. It's not causing damage. Mm, that's a good difference there. Right. So, so with people with an eating disorder, you would still see the need to, to help them eliminate certain things that might, but do you do still somewhat similar to the FODMAP gentle or gentle FODMAP where you would do something more gentle kind of, uh, experiment, see where it goes or how does, how does that work? 
the protocol is really either two, four, or six food elimination. I'd probably start with the two mm. and then we go the next two and the next two and do it solely that way rather than saying, let's take all of this out. Yeah. It's really hard to live without, you know, dairy and eggs and fish and mm-hmm. wheat products if yeah. if you've lived on them and you have you have a bad relationship with food. Okay. That's good. There's so much there that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about SIBO. Cause, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a up and coming one or not an up and coming one, but something that we see a little bit more of let's uh, talk about maybe the populations and what it is. Yeah. So SIBO stands for another acronym stands yes. for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm-hmm. And this is bacterial overgrowth. It's really a misnomer because there's more than just bacteria in there. If we're going to get science nerdy, there's like archaea and fungi and back, all different kinds of stuff in there. But so, um, and methanogens. And so, um, oh, I, I can't believe you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so many things. Yeah. Um, so these, um, these microbes grow into, in the small intestine where they don't belong. And they can cause similar symptoms to IBS, but the bloating and the gassiness and pain tend to be higher up in the abdomen. So I tend to ask my clients when they say they're bloated, where do they feel it? Below the belly button or above the belly button. Um, And usually the above the belly button is kind of a key that gas is hanging around in the small intestine Mm. a little bit more. It depends on their, you know, how they're built, but um, that's typically when they feel pain in their ribs, it's usually the small intestine is filling with gas. So, Mm. um, Although we don't know how SIBO is caused yet, uh, there's definitely groups working on it. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So if such people, as uh, there's um, that there are, I'm gonna get hate mail for this one, but that there are like antimicrobial herbs to be taken. Oh, uh, treatment fun, approaches, you mean? Treatment approaches. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so um, I tend to stick with the research-based stuff. And there's a lot of good research coming out of a place called MAST, M-A-S-T. And mm-hmm. don't ask me what that stands for, but it's in, right. um, it's out of Cedar sinai in California. Dr. Mark Pimentel is the lead researcher there. And he's been, this is his, you know, passion project. He's been working on it for a long time. And he's been coming up with more and more information about how this works. One of the things they did find is that about 60% of people with SIBO have IBS. So even though there isn't a first line treatment of diet yet, a lot of times the low FODMAP diet does work for people with SIBO, but -hmm. really the first line treatment is an antibiotic. That's interesting. So I would imagine it'd be an antibiotic that targets the GI. I've seen that, but it's like you said, how, how effective is that, um, short-term and long-term? I know you don't know much about, or we don't really want to talk about medicine, but um, what have you noticed if there's uh, efficacy around that treatment approach? Yeah. So the, um, the drug that's most commonly used is rifaximin. It's mm. the, it goes by Zyfaxin is the, uh, is the brand name of it. Uh, and a lot of people do well with it. It's a 14 day course of 500 milligrams, three times a day. Anything less would not be um, efficacious. Mm-hmm. And uh there are a bunch of people that do well with one course, but it's safe to take up to three courses in six months. So sometimes if my clients feel a difference, but then symptoms start to return about two, three weeks later, mm-hmm. I'll suggest that they contact their GI doctor and get on another round. 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes two two rounds to work. Uh, it works best for those that experience um, diarrhea instead of constipation. The, those people who experience diarrhea tend to have either the hydrogen or the hydrogen sulfide, um, the microbes that cause the overgrowth of those things that produce those. Um, and so there's another gas that um, could be produced. It's called methane, and that's produced by methanogens. And because methanogens are not bacteria, it's actually a misnomer to call it SIBO, mm, yeah. right? Because So it's called intestinal methanogen overgrowth or IMO. So there's sort of like two groups there. Mm-hmm. Both are tested using a breath test. Um, you can either get an at-home kit or do it in the doctor's office and uh, breathe into a tube or a bag uh, every 20 minutes for two hours after taking a substrate and, um, and then the gas levels are measured at around the 90 minute mark. And, and then you are, uh, diagnosed. Oh, okay. So you don't have to do it at the doctor's office. You do it at home. You send it off or you send it to the doctor's office. Is that how it goes? Yeah. You send it off. Uh, depends on what, uh, what the, the version practice. you get so yeah. with, with, um, with the pandemic, I found a lot of people doing home tests because mm. the doctors weren't doing them. And then some doctors, because the machine is expensive, they don't have it in their offices. So they send them to another practice to have it done. Mm, um, okay. So I think the at-home kits are becoming more popular now. Oh, okay. All right. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned how SIBO 60% lead into IBS. So you kind of hinted at uh, some people that have SIBO see some improvement with the low FODMAP. It, it, do you know the percentage or, or? I don't know the percentage okay. of those folks. No. Okay. Okay. I actually only had a couple of clients in, my gosh, I would want to say the last 10 years or so that have come to me with SIBO. And then I've tried the low FODMAP where it seemed to work. But I mean, I also haven't had a whole lot of SIBO clients. You know, I would say a little bit more than two handfuls in the last 10 years. So um, take that for weak science. (laughs) Well, so, you know, the cause of it the overgrowth itself can be caused in a, in a few different ways. Some we might not know, but the kinds we do know is um, for some folks, it can happen because there is a, um, a high stool burden. So the gut is filled with waste. Maybe they have constipation, not emptying as frequently. And so waste can back up into the small intestine where it doesn't belong. Mm. And then I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that. Okay. Yeah. They can hang out in there and then ferment away. Another thing is that our small intestine has something called a migrating motor complex or MMC. It's like this wave-like cleaning system that happens about every 60 to 90 minutes once food has emptied out of the small intestine. Mm -hmm. So that may not be working well. And so there could just be like dust left behind. Do we know what uh, causes that uh, not to work well? Is it is it the same gut brain connection kind of thing? I don't know for sure. Yeah, we don't know, right? Yeah, yeah I'm not sure that that's known. Yeah, yeah, that would be just me speculating. So I apologize there. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often I, I don't know about you, but do you also help? I know that we are connected with therapists, but uh, how much work do you do with mindfulness and awareness and? relaxation techniques around nutrition. Do you do any of that? I do. Um, For a lot of my clients, especially the ones that have eating disorders, I do collaborate with their therapists and I stay in my lane and they stay in their lane. Mm. But there, there there's a lot of research to show that 
gut-directed hypnotherapy mm. is very effective for people with IBS. Um, and I just heard a statistic the other day that there are only 400 GI psychologists in the world. So unless you live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where there are three, you're not going to find one so quickly. Um, but there are some apps on the market that have been, um, that are been tested and created by GI psychologists. One in particular is called Nerva, N-E-R-V-A. And it's uh, a lot of um, visualization and techniques and, and things to listen to in order to um, retrain how your gut or how you respond to something that would trigger stress or anxiety or get your gut all worked up like that. I'm glad that you're bringing up the stress because that's exactly what I was thinking about with this. I can totally see again, that stress connection there. And it's interesting about that app. I haven't heard of it. Um, I have heard about there only being about 400 GI psychologists out there. Do we know if it's just psychologists or they're also therapists? That's one question that I wasn't sure about. Yeah, there, there are lots of folks that can do this and can be trained in, in gut-directed hypnotherapy, uh, but the people who have studied it are the GI psychologists. So while you can get trained, uh, I don't know that there are many who are. I know in Connecticut, there were three listed on a site that had um, a directory yeah. And two of them were pediatricians and one of them was out of practice. So it, it wasn't anyone I could find in my whole state. Mm, interesting. So I tend to recommend the app because they, they do have a seven day free trial. And so you can first mm. see if you like the idea of it. And if you do, uh, then you can invest in it. It's an expensive app. I think it's $97, but it's a three month program, probably cheaper than going to see a you know, a, a psychologist, or, yeah, or a therapist. therapist, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you see some improvements uh, using something like Nerva? Yeah, I have. I oh, have. you have. Yeah. Okay. So for the clients who can name that anxiety or stress definitely plays a role in their symptoms, I think it works best for. And those okay. are the people I recommend it to most often. Is it just for IBS, or do you you can do it for all of the other gut health issues? I'm sure you could do it for other things, but I think it's meant for IBS. Okay. All right. Good. Good to know. Um, okay. Good. I, this is great information. I I I can continue asking you a lot more <laughs> questions because this kind of stuff really fascinates me. It really does. And and gut health is one of those things that people feel so good when they feel good. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, this feels great. This really helps, which is, I bet, very rewarding for you in your practice, right? <laughs> oh, for sure. I, you know, I'd say, you know, with the gut health folks, a couple of sessions, they feel better, they're on their way. Mm. More challenging as the eating disorder folks, it, it's not a couple of sessions. No. Like years and yes. it's it's not linear, nope. right? So it's it's a lot of work on both of our parts. What I'd love for you to do, Beth, if you don't mind, is leave people with a few tips to improve their gut health, maybe something more in lines of, of general for what we've talked about, or if you want to hone in on one specific condition that we talked about. Sure. So over, I'll just go general for anyone who's listening. Um, the first tip would be do not restrict foods that do not cause triggers for you, or you're not allergic to all foods can fit into what we'll call a healthy diet, quote unquote. Um, and for me, that definition is not being afraid of food, not fearing food, not judging food. So uh, eat a variety because a variety means a diverse microbiome. Uh, the second is make sure you're getting enough fiber. You don't have to count numbers. 
just about eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds and beans, all of those things have fiber. If you eat those things on a regular basis, you'll get enough and your gut microbes, the, um, the good bugs feed off that and they will help to protect you against any um, pathogens that come in there and get you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And the third one would be to pay attention to how much you're impacted by stress and anxiety and get help if you need it. I like that. I love that you finished with that one. That was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So I've got a fun question for you. So we're moving away from all of this great science that we've had and talk about Oh, we didn't talk about poop, did we? (laughs) Everybody poops. (laughs) Everybody poops. That's right. Great book, by the way. Um, I'd love to just ask you a fun little silly question that I like to ask a lot of clients and, and, and it's just out of curiosity too, but if you were stranded on a desert Island or just make believe this was your last meal, what would it be? Oh, so little backstory before I answer that. Um, I have my own history of disordered eating and I, um, stopped eating ice cream when I was 15 and didn't taste it again until I was 45. Wow. Yeah. And so um, I would bring all the ice cream with me because guess what? That stuff's good. (laughs) Right. I mean, those other things like the halo top, that's sad. That's not even ice cream. No, no. Frozen yogurt, it's not really ice cream. Ice cream's good. Yeah. Yeah. I bring all the ice cream. (laughs) I took my daughter and her friend over to the ice cream store yesterday. And, you know, they let you taste now after after a while. So they're tasting again. And um, my little, my, daughter's friend wanted to taste the frozen yogurt and I, I didn't say anything to her and she tried it, you know, it's just not the same. So she was like, "Mm, not the same. I didn't, you know, I thought to myself, yeah, that's good. A child knows creamy yumminess. Oh, anyway. Okay. Beth, I'd love for people to get to, uh, to your, uh, sites and how can they find you your wealth of information and love for them to just be able to find you. Where would you send them? Well, a couple of places. One, they can always come to my website, which mm-hmm. is www.bethrosenrd.com. Pretty simple. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, but I hang out on Instagram and I'm at Beth RosenRD. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter with that same handle, although I'm a little bit more brash on Twitter than I am on Instagram. Okay. Um, and um, those are the places you'd find me. Okay. Um, if you'd like to connect, you can message me through my um, website or DM me. I, I answer back. Okay, perfect. Great. Do you have any programs or anything going on with your practice? What do you do there? Yeah. So right now um, I have a little bit more focus on the clinician side. So I do offer one-on-one mentoring for GI from a um, weight inclusive approach. I'm starting a group mentoring program in the fall. So I have a wait list for that. Okay. And then I um, just published a, a bundle of 40 handouts for digestive disorders from a weight inclusive approach that you can find. It's actually in the link in my bio in Instagram, because that seems to be where the RDs hang out. So mm-hmm. that's where you can find that right now. Great. Okay, great. I, I know some of my clinicians are probably going to jump on that right away. So I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. Um, Beth, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. You are just a wealth of information and I just loved having you on. And by the way, folks, you're going to see her little picture and the picture, her little picture, the picture that she has with a little poop in her hand, which by the way, 
you're you may not be seeing this obviously on podcast but in the video behind her on the wall she's got all these great uh gi or uh, um what do we call them uh art, GI art? yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's so cool i love that i love it. and you have your little yeah. squishy poop my, yeah. my poop emoji sits over my shoulder. Yeah, I think it makes people comfortable, right? Yeah. And what you might not notice also is my, I'll reach back and show you, um, <laughs> is my bookends. Do you see uh, her? Yeah. Yeah. I saw the <laughs> other one. I just saw it today. It's a person on a, um, a potty. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> but like, a, like a Greek goddess sitting on the potty. <laughs> right. I think it's great. Well, Beth, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate you. And I so look forward to maybe having you back sometime soon. That'd be fun. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you, Beth, for all of your knowledge and being an awesome guest on the show today. Just want to remind our listeners that we have our community starting soon. Stay tuned next week. I am going to bring to you stress and back and joint issues. And then I've got a great treat for you because I brought some of the members from the Get Unstuck group that are going to be part of our champions leaders. So listen in because I've got a great group interview for that one coming up in the next couple of weeks. All right, folks, if you haven't already, please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That, remember, really helps us get the show out to a lot of people. And remember to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get these episodes downloaded to your device automatically. Or you could also go to our website, listen there. It's orozconutrition.com slash podcast slash EP150. All right, folks, I hope you're having a great afternoon. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you're having a great week. And remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Until next time, ciao. Oh, yeah.